Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. My name is Kara Frederick, and I am the director of the Tech Policy Center here at the Heritage Foundation. The Tech Policy Center seeks to address what I believe is the fight of our generation, to hold big tech accountable and to center the development of emerging technology firmly in the corner of human flourishing. Today, tech giants work together to disadvantage or destroy existing and potential competitors, undermine our First Amendment freedoms by suppressing speech they don't like, often hand in glove with the US government, and collude with authoritarian governments like the CCP. Our goal is to put power back in the hands of the American people through a combination of new reforms, antitrust enforcement, and policy and technical measures that put an end to its abuses. No doubt, that should provide plenty of fodder for our speakers to dissect today. But before we get to our debate, I'd like to introduce Adele Malpass, president of the Daily Caller News Foundation, and the woman we have to thank for today's event. Adele, over to you. Uh, thank you, Kara, uh, and uh, really thank you everyone for coming today. I think it is so important to gather, to exchange ideas, to be in person and not on Zoom. And it, it's in, uh, and the only way to find solutions and is to talk and to exchange ideas. And I think it's very important to feel connected to other people who are feel passionate about uh, moving our country in a new direction. So really, I want to thank everyone for coming today. Uh, and then I'd like to thank the Heritage Foundation for partnering with us for this. It is uh, great to be here with uh, people who uh, their goal, the, at the heart of what the Heritage Foundation does is exchange ideas, and that's what today's debate series is really all about. Uh, we are at a pivotal point with big tech and censorship to uh, to, it is a issue that is it's a wedge issue for the election, and we need to be discussing this idea. It is a complicated idea where the solutions don't feel often very clear cut, and so uh, today's debate is a great uh, is a great step towards talking and exchanging ideas on this important issue. Uh, when you think about uh, how polarizing this issue is, really in the last two weeks we've had a, two really big events. We've had Elon Musk by Twitter, and uh, and then that was followed right by learning that the Department of Homeland Security uh, has created a disinformation governance board, uh, which of course was was very quickly called the Ministry of Truth, and so we have. Uh, many issues going on in this area, and this debate is very important uh, for this topic. Uh, I'd like to thank our um, our partners, our, uh, our generous uh, supporters of this. We uh, This couldn't be done without the Arthur N. Roop Foundation or the uh, Carpus Family Foundation. Uh, their vision of exchanging ideas, of having uh, someone from both right and left. So today we're going to have someone from the Brookings Institution here at the Heritage Foundation. And I think it is uh, very important to um, to exchange ideas and to really to uh, have people understand your point of view. You have to really understand both sides. So um, and before I uh, turn it back to Kara, I'd like to take one minute. Um, people during lunch were asking, what does the Daily Caller News Foundation do? And at the heart of what we do is we uh, report uh, factual news and breaking news uh, every single day. Uh, we have we were founded in 2011 by uh, Neil Patel, uh, who was a uh, work for Vice President Cheney and, of course, Tucker Carlson, who needs probably no introduction, although it's sometimes good to remind people that he is a 30-year uh, journalist. Uh, and so part of, we have uh, three main areas. We have a American Journalism Institute, which is our fellows program, and we train um, 
uh, young journalists, young people to be journalists, and it is really considered the gold standard of journalism training programs. Uh, and then we have a content group of policy uh, policy reporters, investigative team, and video journalism. And then we have, uh, we are one of the only uh, nonprofits that has a news wire service. And we have 300 uh, licensed partners, uh, everyone from Fox News. We have Heritage's Daily Signal. If you, uh, I recommend that you sign up. It's a great product, and they're one of our licensed partners. And the dailycaller.com is uh, also one of our uh, licensed partners. And so um, that's what we do. We are a growing media organization, and we uh, are hiring reporters. We are, our metrics on uh, viewership are going up uh, all the time. And we are also expanding our commentary section under something called Big Tent Ideas. And I think this debate forum uh, is part of that, is the, the concept of exchanging ideas and listening and learning from others. So. Uh, with that, I'd like to turn it over to Kara. Thank you, Adele. Daily Caller is a fantastic organization, so if you guys don't check them out, check them out today. Uh, now to our speakers. Hosting the show is Heritage's own Paul Larkin. Paul is a Rompel Senior Legal Research Fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. He served in the Justice Department as the assistant to the Solicitor General and argued 27 cases before the Supreme Court. He's a Stanford Law alum and even clerked for Judge Robert H. Bork when Judge Bork was on the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit. Most importantly though, Paul is a diehard New York Giants fan and therefore a very humble man. <laughs> as for our debaters, in one corner we have Josh Hammer. Josh is the busiest human being on the East Coast and the only podcaster I know that already talks at two times speed. He is the opinion editor at Newsweek, the host of The Josh Hammer Show, a syndicated columnist, author at The Daily Signal, and a research fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation. He is also a University of Chicago Law School alum and has a litany of other impressive affiliations that I don't have the time or really the generosity to relay here. In the other corner, we have Niam Yuragi. He's graciously ventured into enemy territory to provide his views today. Niam is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings and assistant professor of business technology at the University of Miami. He is a legitimate technologist with three degrees in engineering and tech from institutions all over the world. His research focuses on the economics of health information technologies, and we're all very grateful that he too wrenched himself away from the Miami beaches to join us today. And with that, let's get started. Paul, over to you. Let me start by thanking the audience who is here and who is watching online. You have a great many demands on your time and both Heritage and The Daily Caller appreciate it greatly that you are willing to share some of your day with us for this event. It is, as Kara said, an important event and very topical. We have two excellent speakers here today. I'm here basically in case one of them decides to go full Will Smith on us today. <laughs> and not, not that I'm going to stop them, I'm just going to keep score. Uh, <laughs> But I would like to turn it over to them at the outset because we have the opportunity to hear them give some opening remarks. And then after that, we will have, if not a taste great, less filling debate, we will have a very high level and I think hopefully for you, enjoyable discussion about the merits of this very important issue. So with that, Josh, you go first. Okay, well, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Heritage, for having me. Uh, Kara, thank you for that lovely introduction. I think you forgot, though, that my friend and former boss, Ben Shapiro, perhaps speaks at two and a half times speed, but I guess we'll leave that for another day. Um, so look, I've been tasked, I think, with what is pretty objectively the more difficult side of this proposed proposition to defend. I don't want to disappoint anyone, so I'll kind of just say that my stance is not necessarily kind of a doctrinaire, like, yes, of course it applies. It's, I'm a lawyer. It's going to be a little more nuanced on that. It's going to be a lot of, like, it depends and stuff like that. <clears throat> but I think to a large extent, to, to some extent, it, it, it definitely does and should apply. So let's kind of walk it through step by step here. So the first thing is I think a phrase that you'll, pro you'll probably hear me say a lot in the opening remarks and in the Q&A and closing remarks is this notion of a public-private distinction. 
So I think if you go back and think, or if you, if you just read the Bill of Rights, obviously, if you just read the Constitution, you kind of think about what state action is under a, a legal framework, it is obviously predicated upon the proposition that state actors and private actors act separately, that there are kind of separate spheres, there are separate silos of society for public action and private action. One of the basic contentions that I have made like, in my writing and in speeches over the past few years, and I think a lot of my other friends and kind of the more kind of anti-big tech side, so to speak, of this debate have made, is that the big tech platforms, through their kind of close and cozy relationship with the federal government, have really decisively blurred that line. I'm thinking here of examples like Jen Psaki, literally speaking at the White House last summer when she says, oh, we're, we're working with Mark Zuckerberg to tamp down COVID misinformation. We're working to, to tamp that down, which, by the way, is very much, I think, should be read as kind of an implicit threat as well, uh, a.k.a. what she is saying there is if you do not actually tamp down and what we idiosyncratically think of as COVID misinformation, then you might be penalized. In fact, many Democratic congressmen and senators have actually gone so far as to say exactly that. Uh, Jerry Nadler on House Judiciary Committee, I think it was two or three years ago, famously said, kind of in the context of kind of the Russian collusion, hoax, misinformation, all that nonsense, famously said, oh, if you don't crack down on more misinformation, you might lose XYZ immunity. And, you know, so that's the, that, that's the first thing. Um, I have limited time, so I don't want to spend too much time on that. We'll, we'll get back to that. Another thing going on here is that um, I don't want to get too sidetracked on this either, but no matter how close of a call this question may be on what I have referred to in kind of my federal society speeches, my legal talks, as kind of the positivist, historicist approach to originalism characterized by the late Justice Scalia and the late Judge Bork. I think this is actually a slam dunk case under the alternative strand of originalist jurisprudence that I have proposed called common good originalism, which is not the same as Adrian Vermeule's common good constitutionalism because it is tethered to original meaning, but it urges within the realm of kind of historical interpretive plausibility, we have to kind of construct various constitutional phrases through the analytical prism of the preamble of the Constitution, because that is what Aristotle would call the telos of the American regime, and that it is kind of oriented to kind of a more common good, health of the whole, general welfare approach at the expense of kind of Jeffersonian strict constructionism. The third thing that I'll very quickly say before actually giving something closely approximating an argument is that I think that there are two easier ways to actually go about this uh, argument in lieu of making a very straightforward legal argument. The first, of course, will, is kind of straightforward common carrier regulation. Uh, the likes of what Professor Phil Hamburger uh, of Columbia has written about at quite great length and what Justice Clarence Thomas in the fantastic opinion in the Biden versus Knight First Amendment case from last April wrote about, I think, um, quite persuasively. Common carry regulation would effectively accomplish this without having to go the First Amendment route. And we can get into that in the Q&A. And then, of course, Congress could also very simply legislate. And they, it, it, it could amend kind of the Good Samaritan provision in subsection, subsection C of Section 230 to basically tether their extra legal immunity provision tethered to a First Amendment standard, which is what I've called them to do for the past two or three years now. Okay, so with all that aside, um, and especially kind of trying to imbue what I've referred to as common good originalism here, I think the basic straightforward argument for why the big tech platform, so to speak here, we're really speaking, we're really talking here, I think primarily about kind of Facebook, Google, arguably Twitter, is that there is a long line of case law, of, of case law specifically over the past 30, 40, 50, 60 years, suggesting that when Congress goes so far as to provide extra legal immunity, aka immunity on top of what is guaranteed under the common law that we've inherited from England and or what is required to the extent it could possibly be required under the Constitution, when they go ahead and do that, they cannot immunize purportedly private actors to do that which the government otherwise could not directly do. So to give you an example here, I'm thinking of, of a case called Norwood versus Harrison from the early 1970s, where the court literally, they actually quoted a, an Alabama district court case from a few years prior. They, they said it is axiomatic, it is self-evident that a constitutional violation will be found when the government actually provides extra legal immunity to immunize a private actor to do that which the government cannot otherwise do. Bringing it home to the big tech context, what that means obviously is in the context of, of the section 230 extra legal immunity, and it's especially, the way that I think courts have willfully misinterpreted Section 230, as Justice Thomas has said over and over again, Eugene Volk said that in a wonderful law review article that came out last summer that he co-wrote with, with Professor Adam Candy of Michigan State. When Congress goes and provides this extra legal immunity, they cannot censor speech that would otherwise be First Amendment protected if it were espoused from a sidewalk. But that's exactly what they've done, and they've done that obviously with no degree, with no small degree of help from the courts. Well, again, I think have willfully misconstrued this statute. But there are other cases as well. There's a case called Hanson. There's a case called Skinner. In, in the Skinner case of 1989, 
uh, the court basically held that uh, when, when the government immunized railroads, um, they, they basically, what they did is Skinner, if I remember the fast rally, they immunized railroads um, from certain swaths of legal liability if they were to kind of um, require drug tests for employees. And what Congress found there is that when you kind of provide a carrot and stick kind of approach like that, that becomes state action, that the state is therefore acting directly. So there is a fairly long line of case law that suggests that when Congress takes kind of a carrot and stick approach of this nature, where they're kind of in, you know, implicitly thinly veiled or even explicit threats, like what we saw from Jen Psaki last summer, and when there's also kind of an extra legal immunity, the combination of those under current extant case law, I think, makes a somewhat persuasive argument, perhaps not fully compelling, but a pretty persuasive argument under kind of positivist historicist. First Amendment original and jurisprudence that there was state action. I, again, I think under my common good originals and thesis, it's pretty close to a slam dunk, though. Okay. Thank you, Josh. Neon, your turn. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, as I was introduced, I'm not an attorney, so I would not be able to comment on the legal aspect of it. Therefore, I thought I'd tell you a personal story. Uh, I was born and raised in Iran. When I was in my 20s, my favorite author was a Czech author by the name of uh, uh, Milan uh, Kundera. I used to have all of his books and uh, uh, there was uh, once in a while that you read a uh, page, a paragraph, or a sentence that didn't make much sense to you. And that was when you would understood that this is something that the Ministry of uh, Islamic Guidance has censored the book. So we have a better name for the Ministry of Truth which actually exists in Iran and it's called the Ministry of Islamic Guidance. Every book that publishes in Iran has to first be read by the uh, people there, and, and if there is anything that is problematic, uh, hateful, or misinformation would be uh, censored from the books. So in my 20s, my dream was to come to America just so I can have the English versions of these books and read them without censor. Uh, and I think that is what is unique about America, freedom of speech. That is, that is, that is, uh, what was uh, luring me to America. And I'm pretty sure that it is the same thing for a lot of other immigrants, especially the ones who come from countries like me, whom freedom of speech does not exist. Uh, it is, uh, therefore, not very uh, uh, fortunate for me to see that a lot of people are, are uh, arguing against freedom of speech. One common thing that we hear nowadays is that, well, freedom of speech does not uh, does not apply to misinformation or hate speech. Uh, and I have a big problem with that argument uh, for, for three reasons. The very first one is that I think it is very difficult to implement because it implicitly assumes that there exists an authority that has the highest moral and ethical stand that, uh, that can uh, decipher the intent of the speaker to see whether or not uh, the speaker is hate, uh, hateful or not. And also, in addition to that, that authority knows everything that there is to be known in the world so that they can precisely determine whether something is misinformation or not. Uh, the, the second argument against that is, I think, the misinformation and hate speech is the only speech that needs First Amendment protection. You know, if you go to Iran and shout that I love the Supreme Leader, uh, and whatever he does is right, uh, you would be very welcome. You would not see any repercussions. But if you say that I hate the Supreme Leader, or if you dare criticize anything that he does, then you would wish that you were in America and you were protected under the First Amendment. Uh, actually, when you think about it, in all of these countries, uh, before banning your speech, they first label it hate speech or misinformation. You know, that is the grounds for banning the speech. So I would argue that we precisely need free speech for uh, free speech protections for hateful speech and what, you know, the majority would, would consider disinformation. And finally, let's assume a scenario where we could all agree that something is wrong and hateful. So what? What is the impact of such a hateful speech? Do you really think that it would, it would, it would uh, 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 lead to anything real? I, I would argue that it actually lights a very positive shine 
on, uh, on reasonable and correct speech. Because in comparison, you would be able to see how different these two views are. Uh, so so that, is, that is how I think about it. And then I'm looking forward to, uh, to our discussions with Josh. Thank you. It seems uh, that we have at least, say, three sorts of sub-issues that'll come up in our discussion. One is, does uh, the, there is there a restriction on social media now in the sense that because of the immunity they enjoy, they have some sort of government nature that requires them to be non-censorious in what they do. Second, regardless of what the law is now, could Congress impose such a duty on social media going forward? And thirdly, if Congress does, what are the consequences and for whom? So I mention that just to give you here and at home an idea of the sorts of things we will probably talk about. So let me start uh, then with the question of to what extent is there now under the law because of Section 230 some non-sensorial obligation on social media? And if there is, does that exist not simply because we have Section 230 that gives them immunity, but because of the either monopoly or oligopoly status that a lot of the, man, the many different social media platforms have? Is, in other words, the obligation uh, to be neutral a combination of Section 230 and antitrust principles, or is it one or the other? Josh, let me let you go first. I mean, look, from, the, from a perspective of like being a good civic citizen, which I obviously don't expect you know, the woke Aradis in the boardroom and the Fortune 500 to be these days, but hypothetically speaking, if we still cared about the idea of corporations and C-suite executives as good patriotic citizens, you know, of course that they would you know, abide by their sense of kind of civic duty and have a First Amendment standard here, right? Obviously, that obviously that's not happening. I mean, kind of like the, you know the the statements we've seen over the past few years from like the C the, the CEO of Twitter, who I hope is fired, the first that Elon Musk takes over. Um, you know, the, the Prague or I can't remember his last name. He had some statement a few years ago where he was like, "Oh, Twitter doesn't stand for the First Amendment, obviously." But in theory, if we actually cared to kind of raise kind of patriotic, like you know, Tocquevillian kind of you know intermediate institution kind of well-informed citizens, of course we would not have people rising to the levers of power within a corporation like that would espouse these sort of things. But yes, I mean, look, I think Section 230 is probably the more straightforward claim to what you're saying. Obviously, to, to the extent that there's a legitimate monopoly, and I have written, I, I have called for Google and Amazon in particular to be broken up on antitrust grounds. Um, you know, Twitter is you know, probably not a natural monopoly, so it's a more difficult question. But I think, I, I think Section 230, based on kind of what I said in my opening remarks, to a large extent, does require some sort of First Amendment standard already. And the extent to which Section 230 has been interpreted to give kind of such discretionary power to the big tech platforms to do what they're currently doing while they have this immunity, potentially kind of, uh, put another way, if, if I were a judge and that case kind of came across my desk, you know, there's a very well-known kind of canon of constitutional construction where you try to avoid constitutional issues. You try to avoid kind of taking on the constitutional issues straight on. So you should kind of construe the statute in a method that does not raise a First Amendment question. So in this case, the way to do that would be saying that because they have this extra legal immunity and because of cases like the Norwood versus Harrison case that I cited earlier, where again, to remind you guys, the court literally said it's axiomatic, it is self-evident that Congress cannot immunize purportedly private actors to do that which the government itself cannot directly do. And again, what I'm saying is because of the way Section 230's so-called Good Samaritan provision in subsection C has been interpreted to give such large swath of discretion to the big tech elites, to the oligarchs, that that has created a constitutional problem under the very wording of Norwood versus Harrison. So we should err on the side of not construing it that way, construing it in a much more reasonable way, where the Good Samaritan provision does not actually entail that. So to answer your question, look, I think Section 230 is the better way to go here, especially when you consider, obviously, the preambulatory language. If you actually go back and look at what Congress is trying to accomplish in Section 230, if you go back to 1996 when, when they passed this thing, one of the nice things that Congress does, obviously, when they, when, when they pass the statute is they usually, you know, they have like whereas drivens, whereas X, whereas Y, whereas Z, therefore A, B, C, D, E, et cetera. Well, one of the, one of the criteria that Congress said they were hoping to achieve by giving the tech platforms back in, you know, it's 1996, it's kind of like the Wild West, it's like, you know, the internet's like a brand new frontier, I mean, it's the old like AOL dial-up dial internet era. One of the things that they were trying to do to help get this thing started was they literally said we were hoping to achieve a true diversity of political discourse. 
Um, well, you know, I, I think it's difficult to not read that as like an implicit quid pro quo. I mean, they're trying to get a, a, a true diversity of political discourse out there. There's the quid. The quo is we're going to give you large swaths of ability to kind of police your own platforms. At the time, what they really had in mind, by the way, was, was, was pornography, child pornography, sexual trafficking, things of that nature. That's obviously kind of the statute that Section 230 emanates from. Um, but Section 230 is the better way to go here for all of those reasons. I mean, I, I, you don't have a legal requirement to take a certain first amendment standard simply because you are, are a monopolist in a certain space. The, the, the legal remedy there, if you're a monopolist, obviously, is antitrust. So I don't think antitrust necessarily requires a first amendment remedy. The more likely path there would be Section 230. Yeah, well, let me ask you to come at this from a non-lawyer's perspective. You're, you're not a lawyer. You have a real job, okay? <laughs> When the First Amendment was adopted, there obviously was no electronic media. What you had were print media, but there were many of them. You didn't have, uh, to the best of my knowledge, anything on the scale of some of the larger ones today, like the New York Times, Boston Globe, Miami Herald, all that sort of stuff. Um, and yet you saw for a very long time the development of a lot of other newspapers. Now, if there were this obligation imposed on social media not to censure political viewpoints, what would happen economically and technically? Would you, be, would you see other companies be able to enter into the market? Uh, is there something in the market or there's something in the technology that's holding them back from doing that today? Right. And, uh, it, it's, it's a very good question. I do believe that whenever we are thinking about these issues, we have to consider the uh, dimension of time and also uh, the fact that both these people or tech, tech companies that you're trying to regulate and people, the users, and their competitors can then react to whatever the law is. So for example, you mentioned that right now it is very difficult to distinguish the government and big tech very correctly because of uh, uh, the shameless way that they are in cahoots with the Democratic Party. Uh, that is a very valid argument as long as we have the Democratic Party in power. Uh, it was not valid when Trump was in the power. So you could draw a very distinct uh, line between the government and the private sector just two years ago. Uh, now, uh, let's play this out with Twitter because it's now bought by Elon Musk. Uh, uh, I am not a lawyer, so that's the disclaimer. Uh, but uh, while the Constitution uh, gives me a right, it is not at the expense of the rights of other people. Uh, meaning that, yes, I am entitled to free speech, but the uh, Heritage Foundation does not have to uh, give its platform to me so that I can exercise my free speech. The uh, sidewalk example that you said, well, of course, I can go shout whatever I want on the sidewalk, but it doesn't mean that you have to give me a megaphone, right? Uh, uh, with, uh, with Twitter, I do agree that it would be really good if everybody could say whatever they wanted, but what if Elon Musk said, you know what, I'm not going to do this. I, I, I don't want to do this. It's not economically or politically beneficial for me to continue this, so I'm going to shut it down. Are we going to say that that is a violation of the First Amendment of 330 million users of Twitter, therefore you can't? Isn't that uh, involuntary servitude that we are imposing on, on Elon Musk uh, to, to run a platform so that we can enjoy our First Amendment? Uh, so when we play it out, it, it is a, a little bit uh, difficult. Um, now, the same goes with Section 230. The reason, I think, uh, that it was put, uh, put in place is to allow the internet economy to, 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 to grow and to exist. Because if we uh, think about it, the amount of content that is published on Twitter in 24 hours is equivalent to the amount of content that is published by New York Times in 182 years, right? How are you going to uh, uh, have editorial power over it? You can't. And the moment that we take that immunity from them, you open the floodgates of lawsuits. It would be really good news for lawyers, but it will be the end of big tech in the United States. And it does not uh, limit to Twitter or Facebook or what we can say on those things. It will very soon uh, uh, spill over into other things. Because if somebody can argue that Twitter should be held responsible uh, with the same standard that New York Times is being held responsible for the content that is published on the platform, then 
then how difficult it would be from a legal standpoint to argue that, you know what, Google also uh, should be held standard if I'm exchanging emails that would uh, lead to some terrorist activities. So isn't it, uh, isn't it uh, uh, then in the interest of Google and all these other uh, uh, communications platforms to have even more uh, 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 knowledge of my private communications, and then wouldn't that uh, undermine uh, my, my Fifth Amendment rights, my, my rights to privacy, where all of these big corporations. So I think we have to, we, we have to think, think about this uh, in, a, in a longer perspective. And with the longer perspective, don't forget this thing, that of all uh, the average lifetime of S&P 500 companies, is 22 years. They die. We are just assuming that five years from now, Twitter will be there and Facebook will be there and they're going to be exactly like that. They won't. And as, as, as soon as you create a scenario where most of your user base, or at least 50% of it, are really outraged by the type of the services that you're providing, by what you're doing, you would open up the doors of uh, the doors for your competitors. They can come in, and they can they can change. Now, it is important to to know that technologically and economically, we did not have that possibility so far. Economically, it due to the fact that these platforms thrive on network externalities. That is a scenario where you can only have. Uh, winner-takes-all situation. You can only have one Twitter because you want to be on a platform that everybody is, right? So as soon as somebody, uh, you know, advances a little bit, then that's going to be the winner. Uh, it is very difficult to imagine, for example, Getter or Truth Social can become any serious competitors for Twitter, not because technologically they are lesser than Twitter, but because simply Twitter has a larger user base. Therefore, if you tweet something on Twitter, a larger audience would see it, and as a user, you would be inclined to tweet on Twitter. President Trump himself would rather tweet on Twitter than Truth Social, simply because it has a wider audience, right? So that is the first one. And then the second one is, uh, is the fact that now, I think, we have access to these uh, decentralized technologies based on blockchain that would allow creation of platforms that have a much more decentralized governance structures in which uh, users would have a much stronger say in them uh, so that they can have a more significant role in, in setting the rules and also they would be much more immune to being censored because by design these platforms and the content on these platforms is very difficult uh, to be censored. So uh, while I do agree with the uh, notion that what these platforms are doing is not right. Uh, I am much more optimistic. Uh, I, I do not really like the government to come in and, and, uh, and do anything about it because I, I do believe that uh, a, a capitalist market and an open market would, would solve the issue in the long run. Well, you mentioned something. You mentioned government. Let me come at this whole issue from an, another perspective, and I want uh, this to be a toss-up. Either of you can answer. Uh, talk about the problems of elections. Okay. Does social media have the ability to influence the outcome of a federal election? And if it does, what can we do about that? I mean, for example, um, the Hunter Biden laptop story was uh, you know, not suppressed by Twitter, but they wouldn't allow it to be talked about. Is a way to deal with this problem, uh, rather than say, take away all of the immunity that someone has, come at it in a, in a smaller way. In the last 30 days before an election, require that social media, uh, or prohibit social media from censoring anything posted by anyone who is on the ballot for office. So that anyone on the right or the left, Republican or Democrat, can post anything they want. And this way, if somebody were running for office, they could post about the Hunter Biden laptop, even if uh, the, a private party could not. Is that a reasonable solution to this sort of problem of you know, affecting elections? And Josh, I would also like you to, since you're the, the lawyer of us, to address the question whether that would be constitutional. So either of you, who would like to go first? Right. Um, can I respond real quick to, that, that was a lot of what Neem just said there, but I, I'll, I'll answer your, your question as well. 
So I think there were three things said before that need correction or at least some more color to provide kind of the full perspective here. Um, the first that I heard was, um, you know, the idea that there are network effects, obviously, for social media. I totally believe that. That's actually a very kind of like UChicago concept. So I'm very familiar with the idea of a network effect. That's kind of actually why in my remarks earlier when I was talking about antitrust and the natural monopolies, I specifically said Google and Amazon, but did not, did not say Facebook, actually, d deliberately. Because Facebook, very much in many ways, is a monopoly. I think 78% roughly of American adults use Facebook, but the network effects are so entirely profound that's not entirely obvious to me as a prudential matter that antitrust is the right way to go. I would actually personally prefer common carrier regulation along the, along the lines of what Justice Thomas has outlined for Facebook. One other thing that I think needs some additional color, um, look, I, I, I agree with the idea here um, you know, uh, that, uh, that you know, like, I, I, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it was like 182 you know, a year the New York Times, 24 hours a day in Twitter. You know, look, I, I don't necessarily want Twitter to staff up with like 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 engineers to monitor all this stuff. I have a very, a very easy solution to that, to that problem, though. Stop banning people. Stop shadow banning people. If you want to be treated like a platform and not a publisher, then act like a platform. Don't act like a publisher. Act like the interactive computer service, use the exact term of Section 230. It's not a very radical concept there. And the obvious way to do that is by tying Section 230 extra legal immunity to a First Amendment standard, by statutorily codifying that in lieu of the Good Samaritan provision of subsection C of the statute, which is what I've called to do for years. That's perfectly constitutional, it's well within Congress's Article 1, Section 8 enumerated power ambit. It's entirely kosher as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I think I actually probably answered both your questions there. So. Okay. Well, let me then offer me the opportunity. Shall we look at this from the uh, perspective of making sure that uh, we don't have someone who's very powerful having an adverse effect one way or the other on elections. I mean, Senator Josh Hawley wrote in his book, The Tyranny of Big Tech, that there was a real risk that this would happen. Is, is that uh, sufficient justification for the sort of proposal I mentioned, where for 30 days no one uh, can censor anything if it's posted by a candidate for office? Well, uh, I, I really don't know. It, on, on the face of it, it sounds uh, something like a reasonable thing. But again, put yourself in the shoes of Twitter, right? If you are going to create rules that their intent is described as, uh, as uh, keeping uh, the integrity of our federal elections, right? Uh, well, Twitter wants to do that as well, right? But the Hunter Biden uh, story is a really good example because, first of all, I don't think that we need to uh, speculate on what would have been the reasons. There are some polls that show that like 13 or 18 percent of uh, uh, people who voted for Biden would have voted differently if they had known about the Biden, uh, Hunter Biden story. So, so I agree with you that, yes, these platforms obviously have very strong influence on, on federal elections, right? And then I also have this assumption that the people who are running them would like to have integrity in the federal elections. Now, the time that Hunter Biden's story came out, don't ignore the fact that 51 officials of the intelligence community came out and said that there is uh, a lot of reason to believe that this is Russian disinformation. Okay? So you have New York Post on one hand, and then you have former heads of CIA, FBI, all the big guns, on the other hand, telling you that this is Russian disinformation. And you want to keep the integrity of the US federal elections. What would you do? Wouldn't you censor it? You would. And, and so, so this is the, the point that I want to make. We cannot think about Twitter in isolation and ignore all the other players that are out there. right? And as soon as we start regulating and putting laws in place, that are intending to uh, keep the integrity of the federal elections, I'm pretty sure that they would be interpreted in ways that we were not really wishing. Okay. Right, so Josh, let me, let me ask you to respond to that. Yeah, I okay. mean, is the way to deal with the Hunter Biden problem just let the Post story be published and let the 51 uh, you know, government officials have their say too? Uh, and it probably can't be done for a newspaper like the New York Times or the Washington Post because of the Supreme Court's decision in Miami Herald versus Tornillo. But can it be done for social media? Look, big tech, as far as I'm concerned, helped steal an election for Joe Biden. 
uh, I mean, that happened with, with, with the New York Post story. The statistic you just heard is accurate. As high as 15, 20 percent of people who voted Biden said they literally would have changed their vote if the story were out there. The New York Post, at least at the time that this story went down, was the fourth largest newspaper in terms of circulation in the country. I used to write for them regularly, still write for them on occasion. I, I know that paper extremely well. They were locked out of their own Twitter feed. This, you couldn't even DM this, the link. You literally could not privately share the link to this bombshell story that upwards of 20% of people said would, would literally change their vote. But it's actually not just that. If you go back and look at Google, I mean, I hear Neem say we can't focus too much on Twitter. That's fine. Let's talk about Google. So Google, you know, I think it was maybe four, four or five years ago, Dr. Robert Epstein, you know, this, like, this, this computer scientist was kind of dragged before. I don't remember which committee it was. Maybe it was the Senate Commerce Committee. I, I think it was the Commerce Committee. Maybe it was Judiciary Committee. And he, he, he testified, he is a PhD in this area, he testified that according to his own research, and he personally voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, if I recall, but he testified that Google single-handedly, single-handedly, was able to manipulate upwards of 3 million votes in Hillary Clinton's favor in the 2016 election simply due to algorithmic manipulation, literally simply due to Google, which is a literal monopolist, if there ever were one, has a, you know, like a 90% market share in the search market. They are crazy on their advertising as well. They're a true monopolist who should be broken the hell up. But if you look at Google in particular, 3 million votes simply by kind of delisting kind of pro-Trump URLs and kind of upranking uh, pro-Biden URL. So yes, big tech, I, I, as far as kind of a, yeah. the fundamental way to think about big tech, and I'm glad I kind of just thought of this, I, the censorship stuff, it's all downstream of, uh, of a broader point. The broader thematic point the, the, at the level of political principle here is one of sovereignty. It is who is going to, are, are we going to control our own destiny? Are we going to write the rules for our own town square, our own public square, to control our own destiny as a people if we are actually sovereign under kind of the we the people in the preambulatory of the U.S. Constitution sense, or are we going to outsource these decisions to these politically monolithic leftist hacks out in Silicon Valley? I mean, I think the, the examples of the New York Post censorship and Google kind of raise those fundamental questions, and Congress absolutely can and should act in every way conceivable to do so. All right, let me ask one last question before I, I get some from the audience, as well as people watching online. Um, as Kara mentioned, uh, we now have it, uh, a change in the landscape here. Uh, Elon Musk is now going to be the, the owner of uh, Twitter. I don't know if the paperwork has all been done and all that, but you know, from, from what we know, he's now going to be in charge. Uh, what do you say to this argument? That whatever the merits are of the concerns with big tech either having too much power in the market and therefore potentially violating the antitrust laws, or having too much sensorial ability and therefore intruding on our First Amendment freedoms, not from the perspective of the government doing it, but just from a private party doing it. Should we wait to see what happens once Twitter gets up and running under Musk? I mean, people will argue, okay, fine, you have a good case, but let's wait. We don't need to do it now. Let's see what happens when Elon Musk runs Twitter for a while. That may change everything around. What do you say about that argument? Uh, well, I wish I had a crystal ball to see what happens in the future of Twitter. But based on what Elon Musk has said right now, it seems like it's going towards a good direction, right? He's saying that I'm just going to uh, follow the law. And if there is something that you don't like, go change the law, and then I will react differently in, accordingly in, uh, in Twitter. But I think uh, Elon buying Twitter under the assumption that it will uh, you know, scale down the censorship and allow conservative uh, points of views to be spoken. I see a lot of conservatives gaining hundreds of thousands of view, uh, followers overnight, uh, coincidentally, by the way. Uh, is, uh, assuming that happens, I think it's a very, very, very important change that has ramifications well beyond Twitter itself. And, and the very first one is that it will break up the uh, homogeny in big tech. So in an orchestra, you only need one person to be out of tune and do not follow the conductor. That would be the only sound that you will hear. It doesn't matter that there are hundreds of others who are perfectly in tune, right? So if Twitter does not follow the message, then the whole narrative will break down. And, uh, and that is a really good news for diversity of thought and ideas in this country, all right? Uh, that is the very first one. And then the second one uh, is that we have to think of these 
companies as uh, the creations of humans. You know, to quote uh, Milton Friedman, since you uh, are, a, are a fan of Chicago, you know, companies do not have any identity. They are just uh, a, a group of humans getting together and doing things. And I was looking at some statistics about the political views of these big tech companies. I think in Twitter, it was something like 99.8% of the employees at Twitter are, are Democrats, right? And those are the people who build Twitter. Those are the people who come up with policies to be implemented at Twitter. Now, when, uh, when somebody who is not that left-leaning, and I want to uh, you know, uh, caution everybody to not take uh, Elon Musk being a conservative for granted. He is not a conservative. But not as lefty uh, is a good thing because it, again, would, uh, would allow other people to speak up. Because when you are in a company that nine out of, your, nine out of 10 people in your, uh, among your colleagues have a certain political view, then you think that there is something wrong with you. Right, that you have that, that point of idea. And when you see that this guy takes over, then you would have the courage to, to speak up. And, uh, and also, other people would be encouraged to join the company. And, uh, and, and as uh, diversity of, uh, of uh, opinion and, and political affiliation in these organizations uh, start to grow, we will see the change. All right, well, let me ask Josh. Let me put a, uh, a little bit of a curve on this sort of thing. Uh, we saw what happened with Parler. Uh, you know, if suppose Google and Apple say, well, we're not going to allow Twitter on any of the phones we sell, and Amazon says, uh, we're not going to sell any phones on Amazon that allow somebody to uh, use Twitter under Elon Musk. Uh, is that a, uh, a reasonable fear? Or even if it's, we can't point to evidence of it, we couldn't point to evidence of what they did to Parler before Parler came out. Is, is that uh, a factor to consider here? Because those companies so far haven't been mentioned. I'd, they have the same power to some extent, just from different angles into this issue. Yeah, look, the day that, um, that Apple, Google, and Amazon, through their app stores and Amazon Web Services, respectively, decided to nakedly and openly collude to nuke Parler was the day that the Build Your Own Google talking point died. Um, you know, like, like the, 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 the libertarian absolutism argument literally died in January 2021 when that happened from my perspective, because we saw clearly that that, that, that remedy is just not available to us. Now, I, I understand like if you really, really want to take this result of conclusion, we theoretically could construct our own internet. And you know what, some, some, some of my friends are actually working on that. I mean, like, you know, like Chris Bedford and the folks at RightForge are trying to build a kind of a, a, a pro-free speech rival of sorts to, to Amazon Web Services when it comes to kind of cloud hosting, and that, that's deeply important stuff. And like every kind of conservative libertarian, every, every kind of person who values diversity of discourse should be fully on board and support right forward and, and like-minded companies. But at the end of the day, that remains a massive, massive problem because we're talking here about a level, level of scale that we're just simply unlikely to achieve anytime soon. As far as it kind of gets into like the XYZs of antitrust doctrine, unfortunately, you know, a parallel conduct is not a per se antitrust violation under the Sherman Act. You kind of need, I think, what antitrust doctrine refers to as a so-called plus factor. So you'd have to find, like, um, you know, sub subjective intent. And, you know, the, the, you know you'd be getting into, like, a civil procedure spat about the rules of discovery, what you can kind of get to to find, to find that, um, to find that uh, subjective intent. But um, I certainly think that if antitrust doctrine currently would kind of foreclose that, we probably should consider amending antitrust doctrines that it, that it gets closer to, to a per se violation when something that is so clearly and obviously collusive <laughs> conduct like that takes place. And there, you know, there's no reason whatsoever, obviously, by the way, that Amazon, Apple can't do to Twitter what they did to Parler. We've actually seen some kind of hints of that. I mean, I've literally read some articles suggesting that you know, it, unless Elon Musk adopts some sort of like anti-hate speech standard or something like that when he takes over, that Twitter might be nuked from, from the Apple App Store. And there's all sorts of legislation like currently pending on the Hill right now, actually. Uh, you know, like my, my, my good friend John Schweppe, the American Principles Party, had a good op-ed about this, I think, last week. Um, there's legislation currently pending that would, that would try to fix this problem, that would not allow kind of Apple and Google just like nuke apps willy-nilly like this. But that remains a, a massive problem to your question, yes. Okay, now let me take some questions from the audience. Let me just first say, please identify who you are, okay? Please let it be a question. And giving a speech and then at the end saying, do you agree or not, is not a question, OK? Uh, in the back, far back, all the way in the last row. 
Thank you. Uh, thank you for the deep, deep insight. I, I'm a heritage member and from uh, Happy Science USA Bureau. So I have been wondering uh, if there is any connection or relationship between big techs and Chinese Communist Party, because I sometimes feel it's influenced by the CCP. Thank you. Okay. Uh, anyone want to take it? And let's try. If you could, please keep your answer short, because there are, I saw a lot of hands up in the room. So who would like to take that? Well, I I I, I want to take the non-conspiracy theory aspect of it, and I say yes. And the reason is simply because China is such a huge market that you're bound by the rules of that market if you want to enter. And the, in this, there, there, is a, there is a connection between them the same way that there is a connection between NBA and China. They don't want to lose the Chinese market, therefore they do a lot of things the Chinese will like. Uh, and the same goes for, for, for not only big tech, but also any other company that we have that is operating in, 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 in China. Uh, they, would, they would try to not uh, uh, make them angry. Josh? Yeah, look, I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, you know, Gordon Chang's regular columnist, columnist for me on Newsweek, I edit his columns twice a month. He had a fantastic column for, for me, I don't know, maybe three or four months ago about the extent to which Apple is deep, deep in the belly of the Chinese Communist Party beast. I mean, they are actively, openly working with, with the Communist Party and very much on, on a lot of their um, initiatives and things of that nature. Google, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, a few years ago, like, they, they criticized some DOD initiative here uh, on, on the domestic front, while simultaneously they were working with the Chinese military on something very similar. I don't, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to remember if it was a cybersecurity issue. I'm blanking on the exact details. But there's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence at, at minimum, um, and there's some hard evidence. I, I can follow up with you after the talk and find for you this Gordon Chang comment that I'm thinking of, but yeah, the, the, there is definitely some evidence that, that at least some of these companies are working pretty hand in hand with Chinese Communist Party after that. Hey, next. Yes. It would make it easier. Thank you. Uh, Kurt Levy with the Committee for Justice. Um, I guess I mostly uh, would ask this of Josh, but you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic to your concerns about big tech, but let me ask you about the consequences of um, the direction you want to head in. For example, you take an expansive view of, of state action. Not an implausible, but but I think you agreed an, an aggressive view of state action. Um, shouldn't con conservatives be worried about that? I mean, that uh, sort of the fact that we've cabined state action to true uh, government entities for the most part is one of the few limits still on federal power. And then also, a lot of the solutions that you would favor, whether antitrust or Section 230, involve government bureaucrats or trial lawyers and. Again, conservatives tend not, not to like either. So um, uh, I'm okay, interested yeah, hearing from both of you. Go ahead, Josh. Um, yeah, look, I, I think the time for that line of argument has just totally passed. Uh, that line of argument might have been sufficient 20 or 30 years ago or so. At this point, the left controls every major cultural institution in America. They control the universities. They control Silicon Valley. They control Hollywood. They control the media. They control all of this. There is literally one institution, broadly speaking, that liberals, progressives do not monolithically, unilaterally control, it is government. What that means is that kind of, I think, these outmoded, doctrinaire, libertarian bromides about just like not doing anything when you have power and just slashing, slashing regulation here, they're everywhere when you're in power, the time for that simply is packed. If we are, if we are going to conserve what is this American Republic, what is kind of the true, the good, and the beautiful, and, our, and the order of liberty, the Constitution properly enshrines for generations upon generation, it's time to actually use power to kind of punish companies that go too broke. Like, it really is the DeSantis versus Disney model, honestly. And I fully endorse that model. Hey, right there in the front, second row. Uh, Carl Zebo uh, with NetChoice. We actually are leading lawsuits against Texas and Florida for exactly the issue we're talking about today. One of the things that I think we got away from and I'd like to learn a bit more about is the First Amendment. It seems like we're constantly trying to do an end run around the First Amendment with some legal jujitsu. Courts have said you can't do that. You mentioned Miami Herald v. Tornillo. But to answer your question more directly with the Hunter Biden thing as well, would it be legal for Congress or anybody to pass a law forcing newspapers to host all the content, opinion, and discussion from candidates leading up to an election vis-a-vis -vis the, the uh, 
uh, equal time acts that we had back in the past that were eliminated by Ronald Reagan. So can we do that? And why are we trying to do an end run around the First Amendment to get people to say things they don't want to say? Well, let me say part of the answer. Um, it's not necessarily an end run. I mean, the Supreme Court has treated the First Amendment like a, a basis for developing a common law of free speech doctrine. And so if you have a change in the circumstances from what they were even 25 years ago, let, let alone what they were uh, in the early part of the 19th century, uh, this, the Supreme Court's ability to take the First, to first Amendment uh, into uh, new areas also allows the necessarily the uh, legislature, like Congress, to be able to regulate those new areas. So in other words, you know, what the doctrine has been has been shaped by the Supreme Court. They haven't uh, addressed the text of the Constitution. They haven't interpreted it in light of its uh, history of adoption. They have basically interpreted it as if it were like common tort law. What's good, what's bad, and we'll balance this out. If they're going to continue in that route, and there's no reason to believe they're not, uh, there's no reason they shouldn't take all these other factors into account. <clears throat> You're not getting around the First Amendment. You're just trying to interpret the First Amendment in a common law manner. Okay, in the back, sec penultimate row. You brought up uh, Josh's uh, 1996. Are so you going back to when Clinton was saying post-constitution to everything? So they weren't actually trying to create a constitutional basis for some of this. And diversity was they were planning Hillary to become president. So they were planning to give you your diversity, not ask for it. But if on the First Amendment, it's more where the First Amendment is redundant to the Constitution, where there's room for success, where if you go to the Constitution, is your rights are from the Creator and it's to protect you from tyranny. You don't need the First Amendment, you need that it's redundant to the Constitution and argue against Obama saying a promised land or a perfect union is whatever they say it is instead of your, the religious liberty. It's, it's, I think I should leave it at that. It's very complicated, but. Okay, Josh, was there a question? I, I, I know no, your question. I, I'm not sure. The First Amendment is redundant to the Constitution under. Oh, you're making like an abstract, the Bill of Rights was superfluous because of constitutional structure claiming. Yeah, I mean, like that They said post, so Clinton Gray came in and for him it was a tool to fool everyone all the time and line up his wife to be, have her own presidency. Okay, that's so, really more of a speech than a question. Uh, Woman in the second row. One of the panelists stated that Section 230 was passed in 1996 to foster a true diversity in political discourse or something to the effect. And yet what we're seeing today is the total opposite, that opinions are being explicitly and implicitly suppressed by the, the, the tech companies. Facebook has done a number, including something like putting a misleading label on a video that I uploaded, uh, uploaded of um, Tucker Carlson verbatim. So it's not like I was making a statement. It has locked my account because I did not accept their Facebook protect feature, which applies to journalists, dissidents, and so on. Do you have, do you have a question? Is it, I do have a question, but I'd like to put it in context. Is it, is it so difficult for, for people who are in like situations to sue the tech, are the standards so high that, I'm not a lawyer, so that it makes it difficult for us because there's no recourse, they don't have a number to call, they don't, what, what can you say about that? Um, so look, I, I, I mean, I am a barred attorney, but I mean, I work mostly in writing commentary these days. I certainly am not a practicing litigator as pertains to kind of plaintiff side litigation against tech companies. Um, I, I, I don't know what your direct recourse would be, legally speaking, to be honest with you. I mean, um, what I can tell you is on a very personal level, a very dear friend of mine by the name of uh, Ashley Keller, who lives down actually in Florida near where I live, is, uh, it kind of leads like a plaintiff side class action law firm where he's actually trying to take on the big tech companies on antitrust and other grounds. So we have some lawyers fighting your fight, kind of collectively speaking, but as far as like your individual recourse, um, I, I, my best guess is that would be a, a, a stretch, but I, I honestly just am not practicing directly enough in that field to have a clear answer for you. Well, gang, we have come, unfortunately, to the end of our time, but what I would like to do is offer each of the panelists a minute if they have any final remarks. And, Jan, you go first. Uh, I'm, I just want to thank everybody and thank uh, Heritage Foundation for this opportunity. I really enjoyed this session. Thank you. 
Yeah, I, I think we kind of had a nice discussion. I don't really have a whole lot to add here. I mean, if I could just close on one sentiment, I mean, just to kind of go back to what I said earlier. If the tech platforms want to be treated, legally speaking, as a platform and not as a publisher, then the obvious, most straightforward thing to do is stop banning people. Bring Donald Trump back to Twitter, bring them back to Facebook, stop the shadow banning, stop the algorithmic manipulation, stop doing this to the point where a PhD like Robert Epstein can go testify before Congress that a company like Google single-handedly manipulates three million votes. If you don't want to talk about what we should do about this problem, then stop making there be a problem in the first place. They could totally solve this problem if they want to on their own, but they refuse to do so. On behalf of Heritage and The Daily Caller, I want to thank you all here in the audience and everyone at home. I think we have had exactly the sort of debate that we need and we need more of. Thank you for coming, thank you for watching, and thank our panelists.